BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey everyone, it's Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, and the host of Friend of a Friend, a show where we sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring conversations about building something from the ground up. A few weeks ago, I posted a Q&A on my Instagram asking all of you to submit your questions on how to manage money, and the feedback I got was incredible. So many of you chimed in to ask questions, so thank you to those who did, but it was insanely remarkable to see how many of you asked a lot of the same questions which is exactly why I asked Chloe McKenzie on the show today to help us break down all the things that we clearly should have learned in high school when it comes to finances. Chloe McKenzie is a financial artist and wealth justice activist whose work is at the intersection of education, finance, social justice, and the visual and performing arts. She's become a leader on wealth justice and financial education, namely through her organization, Black Femme nonprofit with the mission to transform school-based learning so that Black girls and girls of color have the skills, habits, and resources to build and sustain wealth. Chloe came from an affluent household in Prince George's County, Maryland, went on to work on Wall Street as a trader, burnt out to the point of illness, and then left it all behind to make her life's mission to close the wealth gap for women of color. She's now the author of The Activist Investor, a guide for how the investor community can contribute to social causes, diving into equity investment strategies, and leveraging shareholder power. In this episode, Chloe teaches us how to reframe wealth to be about funding our own peace, why she's decided to make her book free for everybody, and answers all of our burning questions about how to make our money work for us, advocate for us, and safeguard our future. Here's my friend, Chloe McKenzie. What's going on? How are you? It's so good to see you. You too. Not much. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad that we are doing this. I totally agree. (laughs) You look so cute. Tell us what you're wearing. I know I'm not supposed to ask, but please tell us what you're wearing because you look phenomenal. It's funny because y'all was like, okay, well, so this is actually our kind of, we were inspired by a lot of the looks from Black Klansmen and kind of the Black Panther movement. So I'm wearing commission. So the inspiration is kind of drawn from that. I love that. Where are you? How are you? Kind of like set us up with where you are in the midst of quarantine. Yes. So I started quarantine. I was in LA for a few projects. So what was that? February, end of February. 
I quickly was like, I would like to get out of Dodge. So I have a home in Kentucky and that's where I've been quarantining since March, I guess the beginning of March and have just been enjoying like having a backyard and just staying in the parameters of my, my little kingdom here, queendom. I love that. I love that. Need the nature, like need the outdoorsy stuff right now, I feel like more than ever. So I start off every show asking or proposing an imaginary situation. Mm. You and I are best friends. What's on your mind this week? I love that question. There's been a lot on my mind, to be honest with you. So one has been speaking of the great outdoors and how important that is to my own sanity, especially given all of the uncertainty of the world. I've been walking what's called the Legacy Trail near my house, which from end to end is about 10 miles. And so I've been trying to add two miles each week to complete the whole thing. So I keep asking myself, do I actually want to add two miles this week? Because it'll get to eight miles. So it's a lot. That's amazing. But I think more, more so what's really been on my mind, I mean, that's, I'm glad that there's been more attention about this, but... You know, I'm not too far from where Breonna Taylor was murdered by the police. And the fact that they're still walking free has been mostly on my mind and has been weighing on me. And really kind of this larger conversation of the erasure of Black women from some of these larger issues that are going on in the world. So very heavy, which is why I'm kind of like, okay, I guess you should go walk your eight eight miles. But that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I feel like I've been really trying to find ways in my daily life, especially in the midst of what's going on, civil unrest, um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's like, how can I create spaces for myself just to think Mm -hmm. and not be inundated with information? So how can I like remove myself from my phone and all the things that are pretty intense to look at and just take, I feel like it's the same concept as like when people are like, oh my God, I have all my best ideas in the shower. And it's because you're like, like you're completely distracted from all the things that we're usually distracted by in daily life. So I've, I've been really thinking about those moments. And I like hearing that you're taking walks too, because I feel like everyone's kind of in the same boat. For everybody who's just tuning in, I am so excited to be on a Zoom call with Chloe B. McKenzie. For our audience, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and what your passion work is? Yes. And thank you so much for having me. So hi, everybody. I am Chloe McKenzie, um, but many of you might know me as Chloe B or Chloe B. McKenzie, whatever derivative kind of works. It's taken me a long time to really be able to describe what I do in a very concise way. So I love my team for having us come up with this idea that I am a financial artist. And really what that means is the work that I do in the world sits at the intersection between social justice, education, finance, and the visual and performing arts. And so really what I've done is I I started kind of my career on Wall Street as a trader and then transitioned out of that to really take advantage of what I could be doing in the world to close the wealth gap, particularly for Black women and women of color, and uh, kind of do a bunch of things that I'm sure we'll talk about more today. But I would really say a financial artist is somebody who is using activism as a form, uh, an art form, to help the world become better from a financial perspective and fight for wealth justice, which is really the kind of purpose that I feel like I have in this world. I love that. And I think there was also something so interesting. Chloe and I had a phone call about two weeks ago. And the way you described even just being a financial artist in terms of describing it visually and audibly. So Chloe uses storytelling to teach a lot of her curriculum to students and her followers. And there's something so there's something so human about it to me. And I think finances, as I've uh, as we'll talk a lot about in this episode, 
is something that almost doesn't feel human sometimes. It feels like something super unattainable. So I really appreciate the work that you do. And I'll have you do some of the, the storytelling later in the episode because even some of them to me, like absolutely, I was like, wow, I actually understand that now. And I feel like I've been trained my whole <laughs> life to be told that I'm not really allowed to understand that. So I'm really mm-hmm. excited to get into it. But let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Tell me what your first experience was with holding yourself accountable to financial dependence, independence, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. So I find my story to be something that I'm still rediscovering the beauty of and the profundity of. So I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is one of the very few counties in America where Black families have more wealth than their white counterpart families. So I grew up in a world where if some of the, you know, some of my compatriots in class may have said racist things to us to try to bully us, we would just turn around and say, well, we live in a bigger house. It was very messed up, but that was kind of the weapon that we had. We had kind of this economic power that they didn't, um, which I thought was really interesting. And I, that never really struck me until I got into the work that I was doing. What was interesting is despite the fact that I grew up privilege. I also had an incredibly abusive childhood. And so I was very much a nerd, which we'll talk about and how that's kind of shown up in my life as well. So I actually skipped two grades. And so I was 12 years old when I was a freshman in high school, when I really started to decide that, you know, because of all of the kind of terrible trauma and violence that I'm experiencing at home, you're really going to have to not only dig in and grind this out so you can get very far away from the situation, but that privilege both shielded me and didn't protect me from what I was experiencing. So it shielded me in the fact that I got to go to an incredible school with incredible teachers. And I loved my education experience, which a lot of students from backgrounds that aren't similar to mine don't get to have. But at the same time, because I was a quote unquote golden child, as my teachers would call me, and was very high functioning despite the trauma that I was experiencing, I didn't have the opportunity to, to be saved, to be honest with you. And so what's interesting about how this kind of shows up now is I realized that a lot of some of the violence that I was experiencing outside of the kind of physical realm actually was rooted in finance, that in my household, money and wealth, for that matter, were communication devices, and they were forms of violence. They were weapons. And I didn't realize how much that would affect my relationship with money until I started to really do the work that I'm doing today. You told me an amazing, or it's actually in your book, I think, that you called a meeting with a judge. I don't want to give the story (laughs) away. I want want you to tell the story. But I think it was just mind-boggling to me and a very big indicator of the person that you are today. So I'd love if you could tell the story. Absolutely. So again, imagine being kind of a 12-year-old. I really had this obsession with Matilda when I watched that movie. Did we all not? Right. (laughs) Like, I think I watched Matilda like upwards of 50 times as a kid. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And part of what what struck me about her is I realized a lot of her superpower wasn't just that she could, you know, make things levitate, but that a lot of her superpowers came from books. And so somehow that resonated with me in such a special way. And I started to read a lot of legal books, given the things that I was experiencing at home. To be honest with you, I think in retrospect, somehow a 12 year old little girl was able to reconcile or justify to herself that if she just reads enough, she can build a case for herself to get out. 
and so what ended up happening when my when my parents were getting divorced, I knew that in the state of Maryland, if you were of a certain age, you could request time with the judge <laughs> during the divorce proceedings. And so I knew that what I wanted for sure was that my college and my sister's college would be paid for. And so I read that in the law book that I was reading at 12 and said, hey, like, okay, this is what I want. Made sure that that I submitted that to an advocate who spoke on my behalf. And lo and behold, that was written into uh, the settlement. So it would become legally binding. Incredible. Like (laughs) only because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but also to be a 12 year old and understand the power of money, I think is a, a game changer in your life. It's interesting that even being 12, we're able to still come to some reasoning of what to do or how to understand things. And that's ultimately what I try to get across to people is that we have this inner knowing and this intuition as it relates to money and what to do with it. And so to your point, Olivia, about like, I was taught that this is so confusing. I was taught that this is something that I can't understand without an expert, but that's not actually the case. There's something deliberate and something actually quite unjust about that narrative that you've been fed. You went on to work as a trader on Wall Street and you had an experience that led you to leave and start your own company. Could you tell us about that experience? So when I got to Wall Street, uh, I was certainly the only woman of color on my floor as a trader. There weren't many women at all. And I loved the fast paced energy, the competition. I'm an athlete, so I really thrived on that type of energy. But I also think that that was my undoing, that kind of relentless, unending competition as it related to the gender dynamics and the gender norms on the floor and then the racial norms on the floor. I really didn't consider how much that that was doing to me. And one day I literally was on the trading floor. I felt terrible. My skin was getting really pale. I was shaking. I I felt really nauseous. I just ended up getting out of my chair. I don't know why I walked. I could have gotten a cab, but I ended up walking to the nearest hospital and I didn't go back. Namely because I was in and out of the hospital for about nine months. I was not granted medical leave. uh, So I had to keep trading from a hospital bed. So that's a whole other situation. And so unfortunately, I had to go through five liver surgery slash procedures in the span of about three months. And after the second one, I was laying in my hospital bed talking with the doctors and they're just like, I'm not really sure what's going on, but like your liver is failing. And so I said to myself at that time, I was 21, 22, and I said, okay, (laughs) this is scary. What's your legacy going to be? And it's kind of awful that like a 20-something, a really young 20-something has to ask what her legacy is going to be. But I knew I didn't want it to be like this kind of lackey of, you know, hate to say it, but douchebag traders, right? So I immediately said, prior to getting sick, I became a counselor at a homeless shelter, a financial counselor. And really started to see the impact of unjust wealth distribution, the injustice of wealth inequality, especially on women, and then even more so on women of color. And so I said, okay, if you're going to leave a legacy and we don't know how much time you have, you need to get going right now and incorporate a nonprofit. You're going to call it Black Femme. Black Femme is a word that I put together that stems from Black feminism. And my goal was to close the wealth gap for Black women and women of color while I'm still on this planet. So that's essentially how it all kind of, it was very morbid, but I also think it was such a liberating moment in my life where I just had to say, you know, if this is it, is this really what you want to be remembered for? 
Hey, LA listeners. I have a really exciting promotion for all of you today from my go-to dispensary in LA, Sweet Flower. Sweet Flower is a curated cannabis boutique here in Los Angeles with four locations, Studio City, Melrose, Arts District, and Westwood. They offer a full menu delivery throughout Los Angeles with everything from edibles to joints to tinctures and topicals. What I love about Sweet Flower is that their mission is to set a whole new standard for modern cannabis retail that is inclusive, diverse, and approachable for everybody. So whether you're can of curious or flower fluent, Sweet Flower has the bouquet that's right for you. I am definitely no expert in the cannabis space, but I love Sweet Flower for their custom-created kits. To take the guesswork out of consuming cannabis, Sweet Flower has created kits based on how you want to feel. So whether you want to drift off to sleep, suit tired muscles, or even just have a little fun, there's a kit that's right for you. They make it so easy to get some of my favorite things, like Kiva's Camino gummies. I am so obsessed with the midnight blueberry flavor. It's really helped me sleep during quarantine. Tabriz's citrus CBD mint that helps with any stress or anxiety. Plus, Sweet Flower created a give back kit with 100% of proceeds donated to the Black Cooperative Investment Fund and Equity First Alliance. When you're checking out, make sure to use code FOF15 for 15% off your first delivery at sweetflower.com. That's S-W-E-E-T-F-L-O-W-E-R.com. Have fun. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do with Black Femme and tell us a little bit about your curriculum and kind of your day-to-day now. Uh, We'll get into the book a little bit later, but you're also an author. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what your (laughs) day-to-day is like now because you've got so many things going on. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I know, (laughs) which is crazy. So Black feminist tradition tells us that if we liberate those that sit at the proverbial social, economic, and political totem pole, then we're really liberating everybody. So the idea for Black Femme was that we need not just a reckoning, but a complete revolution and upheaval as it relates to wealth and wealth justice in this country um, with a specific intention to help those at the bottom of the that proverbial totem pole that I mentioned. So Black Femme's mission is to transform school-based learning so that Black girls and girls of color in underserved communities have the skills, habits, and resources to build and sustain wealth. And so I said to myself, here are the issues with financial literacy. The first, which was, you know, typically scares a lot of traditional white male businessmen, is that the issue is really it's that it's standardized. Because what that means is the narratives that we're making available to students as it relates to building wealth, to, you know, building those skills is one dimensional and coming from a predominant narrative, which happens to be white. Example, hey kids, I'm gonna teach you how to manage your money through your allowance. The kids that I was working with live in public housing. Do you really think that they're getting an allowance? So what we're doing was the financial literacy system and that still exists today is still only making narratives available to privileged kids, it would resonate with. And then beyond that, It was not happening during the school day. Schools had really tough time implementing financial education. And I understand because teachers are overworked. And then beyond that, on an equity basis, it was only happening in general education classrooms. Special education classrooms were not receiving this education, which is also a huge problem. And so what Blackroom does is we implement what we call wealth literacy five days a week as a core subject beginning in pre-K. Because early intervention, if we're really trying to close the wealth gap, is important. 
And kind of my day to day, which is quite radical and some would call crazy, but I go to superintendents and I say, Hey, you know, you're not implementing any financial literacy. And I know you want it at the high school level, which we do, but we're going to have you switch out your entire curricular framework and implement wealth literacy five days a week as a core subject. How does that go over? Ah, well, the first question, which, you know, typical in our culture uh, that I get is, well, what about boys? And so I usually say, well, what about them? So at, at the school level, again, we work with every single student. It's not like, oh, hey, schools, go ahead and kick the boys out of the classroom. The point is is the intentionality behind my pedagogical approach, the way that we infuse teaching principles is rooted in intersectional feminism. And everybody should believe in intersectional feminism. And so they're like, oh, well, like we have to highlight black girls in front of the boys. Hell yeah, we do. Of course we do. So that's kind of the first obstacle. Once they kind of realize what we're really doing, because we do everything from creating the lesson plans for the teachers that are scripted, the students, we work with the parents, we train the teachers, we pay the teachers. They realize that we've eliminated all the obstacles to implementing the curriculum in the first place. And then we have this kind of amazing engagement level from the students because they really love seeing themselves show up in the curriculum and they feel a different sense of value. And it's because we're not basing their net worth in their inherent worth. They realize that those are two different things, but they also realize that even if they have a negative net worth or no net worth or a positive net worth, it's not going to affect their value as a person. And so there's a level of what I call the extra economic side of money that really nobody is talking about. That extra economic side of money. You and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's, first off, I'd love to get into the part where we talk about what it means to redefine wealth in general. Yes. But I do think this extra economic part of it that you had talked to me about was the fact that we've all been trained to not make money emotional. So I'd love if you could break mm-hmm. that down a little bit because it was something, as a woman, when you said it to me, I was like, oh, wow. Like, Well, to begin with, I feel like we're told that we can't be emotional in any setting. But especially when it mm-hmm. comes to money, it's something that you know feels gendered. It feels masculine to me. It feels tough, yes. which I hate using yes. that kind of stereotype, but it really does feel that way. So I'd love if you can break down yes. um, that a little bit. Absolutely. So in addition to being a financial artist, I'm also a researcher, have my degrees and finishing up my PhD. Uh, and I'm studying the effects of what I call financial trauma, financial shame, and financial abuse on us as people. And so there are two sides to money that I've recognized. There's the economic side, and this is what we're used to seeing. Chloe, can you please teach me how to budget, how to do this? Because if I do that, I'm going to feel better. And what happens? You, We all know how to budget. Let's be real. We really do. And we don't because there's something else blocking us from actually doing that. And it's because of this extra economic side that I call, which is where all of our feelings, our emotion, our experiences live And beyond that, where the trauma that's actually been transmitted to us generationally lives. And that's actually the important piece. I mean, there's a lot of research about transmission of trauma between generations that started after the Holocaust. And so that's a real thing. And we don't actually realize that like a lot of that is from a lot of finances somewhere. It's either indirectly related to the trauma or it's directly related to the trauma. And so I realized that there are levels of abuse and trauma that we've experienced. Women, for example, historically, okay, right? So it's only been 
you know, a hundred years since we could vote. So, but then what's weird is we got the right to vote, but we didn't get the right to own a bank account until the seventies, 1970s. That's wild. Well, we couldn't get a bank account, but you know what we needed? Approval from our husbands. That's the only way we could get a bank account. That was so short. Of, I mean, literally my sister was born when that law took effect, like just wild that like, that's a, a thing. And that's a trauma that's been passed down to us. So when we think about like, oh, shoot, like why didn't my mom or my older sister or my aunt or whoever teach me this stuff? Well, think about the trauma that they experienced and how that may have been transmitted in their behavior. And so the extra economic side of money is recognizing that we have a lot to learn, actually more to learn about how to heal from, recover from, and manage the relationship that we have with money on a psychological, neurobiological, and emotional level. What we tend to focus on is how do I do this, right? The mechanics of money, which actually is not rocket science, and that even that we're not even taught, but holy cow, we're not even taught how to deal with the emotional element of our trauma and abuse and shame around money, which is making everything worse. Let's zoom out and actually talk about that, what that is all about today. And to me, when I read your book, there was a line in there that put off a major light bulb for me. And it was that wealth is not just about, like as Americans, we have this idea that wealth is about owning the yacht and the houses and the things and et cetera and et cetera. What if wealth is just about funding your own peace? Mm -hmm. So I want to hear about your idea of redefining wealth and where you think we went wrong with understanding what wealth really is. Okay. So the economic, we're going to use the economic and extra economic. The economic definition of wealth is rooted in your net worth, right? Uh, Today, uh, what the big tech CEOs are going to um, testify in Congress. And everybody's talking about their combined net worth. Just the five of them is like $17 trillion, which by the way, is bigger than, you know, most countries budgets. So anyway, net worth is really a simple subtraction problem. It's your assets. This is the value of all the things that you own. What's in your bank account, your 401k, your house, your car. If I don't know, you're kind of eccentric and like, like to collect stamps, you know, like those types of things, art. All of those things are the value of the things that you own. But you also have money that you owe to people and institutions like student loans, credit cards, if you have an auto loan, mortgage, et cetera. So what you're going to do is you're going to take your assets minus liabilities equals your net worth. And this is why we have such an obsession about net worth, because really what you're trying to decide is, do you have more assets or do you have more liabilities? And as millennials, we have typically more liabilities because the student loan crisis is wild. And we have not been given the opportunity to build wealth as young people, which is why I wrote the book in the first place, to recognize where we can start building wealth because we also have this narrative that says home ownership is the pathway to wealth. So we just think to ourselves, oh, we have to wait until we buy a home in order to build wealth, which is not the case. But it does help though, right? It does help. But think about it like this. Think about it like this. Your net worth, that equation is a teeter-totter. On the left side, you have your assets. On the right side, you have your liabilities. It's going to balance, right? So you bought a house for $300,000, but you took out a $280,000 mortgage. Your net worth is only going to be $20,000, right? So a lot of people think that homes are just a pure asset, which they're not. You know what are pure assets? Stocks. 
but we'll get to that in a second. I love my stocks. Essentially, <laughs> essentially right now, your net worth is just a number. So we obsess about the number, which is a form of shame. The real definition of wealth that I think resonates most with people and I think has freed people can't actually, you can't quantify wealth. Well, why is that? Notice what I did with that equation. Your assets was all the things that you owned. Your liabilities was all the money that you owe. We tend to feel shame about the money that we owe, yes? So these are our obligations. We have financial obligations. That's never gonna go away. So we're gonna have to pay bills. We're gonna have to pay taxes. Well, most of us <laughs> who, who function there. under the law. <laughs> right? I sure did, I always will. And the other kind of big responsibility we have to ourselves is about honesty. We're often dishonest about our feelings as it relates to money. And that's gonna be a big responsibility for us because when we're dishonest, we fall back into the trap. And so what happens is if you notice, we have our economic things, we still have all of the assets we talked about, but feelings are on that side. Now we have all of the financial obligations we were talking about before, but we also have honesty as a huge responsibility. How do you quantify feelings and honesty? You can't. Therefore, wealth can't be quantified, but it can be qualified. So what does that mean? We can't quantify wealth, but we can qualify it. And when we qualify wealth, that's all about a self-defined vision. So you're the only person who's going to know if you're being honest with yourself. You're the only person who knows your feelings. You're the only person who can save into your bank account. You're the only person who can pay your bills. So therefore, peace or contentment or whatever that means to you, it's all self-defined. The danger of that to the system is if we actually figure out this equation, the whole system will have to reform itself. Because holy crap, if people aren't obsessing about the number, then they can't build their business models off of the requirement that we have to feel shame when it comes to money. Okay, so you're teaching this curriculum to young children. And I'm sure that they're mm -hmm. taking to it like a fish in water the same way that I took to math <laughs> as a fifth grader and geography and all the things that I love to learn. But that's incredible for the next generation. What do we do for this generation? What's step one in reclaiming our quote unquote wealth yes. on top of all these issues that we've just talked about? You know what I love about our generation, and I'll even argue like the Gen Z generation, we have an intensity about what we want our world to look like. We really do. We may not have all the answers, but that's okay. We have a very intense understanding what it is that we want for ourselves and for everybody else. And because of that, because we have this intensity around what we want and what we feel as though we deserve, which is important. I wrote The Activist Investor because what I realized our generation does really well is we connect our values with our actions. And so I wrote The Activist Investor to get people to realize, one, you don't have to have actually a lot of money to start trading in the first place. But two, I think what's more important than this is the rights that you are afforded when you get into the stock market. And this is the coolest thing ever. When you purchase one share, I'm not talking a lot, one share in a publicly traded company where you would go buy a stock. You get the right, I'm going to say that again, the right to vote for who sits on the board. When you look at these boards, they're overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly cis, overwhelmingly white men, 
the vast majority of these people are over the age of 55. So we're really looking about to do something that's going to not only build our economic wealth, but then also align with what peace looks like for us, which I think for our generation, peace really looks like living in a more just world. (laughs) Then I get when we trade from an activist perspective, we can actually achieve all of those things because you get the right to vote. So we don't have to just wait every two years for a congressional election, every four years for a presidential election. You can vote up to every quarter. Wow, that's crazy. I feel like a lot of people don't know that. Nope, they don't. And you get access to all of the other shareholders who are from that company. So you can organize like we would go knocking on the door and say, vote for this person, whatever. You do the same thing with corporations. I think we realize how important corporations are to the political framework of our country for better or for worse. And so if that's the case, let's get in there. Let's let's go. I think it also speaks to so much of what we've seen right now with civil unrest and all the protests. People are calling for people to vote with their dollars. And I think, yes, showing up to vote is the most important thing in the world, but we can also utilize our financial power to make change in these corporations, whether it's the way that we're spending them, to even examples like you just gave. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's a really interesting piece that I'm glad you brought this up because we tend to focus on using our dollar as, what did I say earlier, our communication device, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We tend to only think about divestment, but we forget about the investment, right? So absolutely, we should be boycotting brands that like celebrate blackface, that are not aligned with Black Lives Matter or water being clean for people or air being clean, climate change, 100%. We need to watch where we consume. We also need to make sure that we're using the same type of energy about investment. So if we, again, I'm not giving investment advice for all the lawyers out there listening, but I'll give you an example. For people who really, which we all should, but for people who are really focused on climate change, for example, We can look at the publicly traded corporations who are actually leading the effort and making sure that climate change is a priority. So Patagonia is an example of that. I don't know off the top of my head what they're trading at, but it's not going to be probably over a couple hundred dollars to just be able to participate in that movement. You've now invested in a company that's doing that. And then, but again, Patagonia, their board is overwhelmingly white. So there are still things that we can do. But the best part about a Patagonia, for example, is, you know, what's going on with because so many people consume their brand because of what they're doing in the world, their stock price is going up for the most part when they're beating out profit projections. So these are kind of the ways that our consumption and investment can work hand in hand. It can help build the economic wealth that we're looking for. But we also get power every time that we own a stock. We're getting more and more power in the corporate landscape. You brought up the book, and I'd love to talk about it a little bit. You guys have to get this book. And I know that you've made some changes to it. So I'd love if you can speak to it a little bit so that everybody can get involved. Absolutely. So for those of you, since Olivia did tell me that there's so many asking about investing, one of the things that I realized what's important for this moment is that, again, what narratives or lessons or advice is available to us that are structuring our relationship and our skills with money. And I also realized that I've had some some conflicting feelings about where I'm putting out this information. And so I've decided that I'd like to decommission my books uh, moving forward from Amazon, uh, which is where you could have purchased the book. 
and I've decided to make it free. So you all will be able to download the Activist Investor, which hopefully Olivia can speak to this. It is also a workbook. So as you're learning the things about how to invest from an activist perspective, there's also little questions that you can check for understanding and practice alongside the words that I'm putting. Hopefully you also laugh too. It's time for our generation to really start to see some of the secrets that are kept behind closed doors. And because of where I was in my career, I was afforded to get some pieces of those secrets that I think should not be secret. So I decided this is my, you know, Real Housewives tell all, right? This is kind of my culmination of of those kind of things. And I really hope that especially by making it free, I know that I'm aligning with my principles of wealth justice that we shouldn't be deterring people from being able to have access to this information because, you know, I, I want to make money off of it. So there's also so many books out there that I think are well-intentioned, but are providing narratives that all of this is a quick fix. And it's just not. I'm very real in the book that it's like, you're not going to be a millionaire overnight. I'm not giving you a timeline of when you're going to be able to get it. And I think that when we do that kind of quick fix, what I call like cookbook type advice giving, it's also another moment for us to feel shame that it's like, okay, well, I hit day 30 and like, I don't have $25,000. So like, what's wrong with me? Right. So it's just a way for us to laugh and to bring together the economic and the extra economic together, but start investing so that we can leverage power of corporations. Hey guys, I have a really exciting announcement for a special event that's coming up. Jesse Bon Jovi's Rose Company, Hampton Water, is doing everything they can to help with the pandemic. This month, they're teaming up with Jose Andre's World Central Kitchen so that $1 of every bottle sold through August 31st will go to the organization that uses the power of food to heal and strengthen communities in times of crisis and beyond, and is active all across the U.S. given the recent impacts of COVID-19. In celebration of this partnership, Jesse's dad, John Bon Jovi, will be putting on a free live stream concert on August 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern time, which will air on the Hampton Water Facebook page. Before the show, John and Jesse will be sitting down for an exclusive pre-show of virtual happy hour and wine tasting, hosted by Live Nation at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. So set your calendars for this incredible event and give back to an amazing cause. Okay, so I submitted a QA and a on Instagram for people to submit their questions, and let's do a couple of them quick fire. Sure. I will not frame these as what's your best piece of advice, but maybe mini lessons. How should sure. somebody in their 20s find the best way to initially invest and diversify their portfolio? This is a great question. And beautiful that you're thinking about this so young. What I like to say is take an inventory of yourself, which is a beautiful thing to do. Follow your own money. Where do you consume? The reason why some of this was freezing because of Zoom was because I have my iPhone and my iPad next to me. I have an iMac. It's like, my goodness, like clearly I am like Apple's biggest queen over here. So When I start to realize that I'm actually consuming or using my dollars in certain places more so than others, well, instead of just continuing to help build their profit margin, how about I get to share in those profits? So take a look at where do you consume and then do an inventory of that corporation to make sure that they align with your values and goals in life. Would you recommend a 401k or investing money? (laughs) Uh, Great question. I'll be, I'll say this, given what's going on in the world, I think we can realize more than ever that diversity is one of the 
greatest things on the planet. And so offering yourself only one or two options, I think is limiting yourself to, you know, what you could ultimately have. Instead of thinking about it, do I take this one or the, over the other? I want you to think about like, what are the pros and cons? So with a 401k, that's a retirement account. If you ever want to touch that money before the age of 59 and a half, why did it half? Who knows? You're going to get taxed on that and penalized. So you're going to be kind of striking two different things that's going to reduce the cost of that. There are some exceptions like buying a home, blah, blah, blah. But with investing, you can touch that money at any point in time. As long as you sell that, you are going to again pay something called capital gains tax if you made money off of that investment. And so it's really just about, do I want money now or do I want money later? And I think about it like this, you know, we are, God forbid, COVID doesn't go away anytime soon. Like I'm still going to, uh, stock up on toilet paper without hoarding, you know, they're not one of those people, but like, and stock up on hand sanitizer, but I still have to use some hand sanitizer now and use some of my toilet paper. And so notice how I'm doing both this have to limit themselves to one particular asset. What percentage of my income should I save? And then what percentage of my savings do you recommend investing? This is a wonderful question that I'm, again, not going to answer as directly as you probably want, because that would be giving advice. But I'll tell you- No this, advice. This is, <laughs> this is where um, you, you'll you start to see some of, again, this like toxic value system that's rooted in uh, a lot of privilege. Because again, as millennials, as Gen Z people, and even younger generations, we're going to start to run up against like, wait, that's like a weird rule that they're using. When you're looking to buy a house, they're going to look at what's called your savings ratio. So in the financial world, I was taught that you're supposed to, quote unquote, save 28% of your salary. For most people our age, that is so unrealistic. But that is unfortunately what even lenders are looking for, like when you're going to buy a house and things like that. So if you can get there, that's awesome. If you can't, there's nothing wrong with you. There's no reason to feel shame around that. But you're going to realize that if you were to Google some of these questions, you're going to get what? Quantities and not qualities. So what you want to think about is what is the percentage that you want to save? Well, I'll ask you, what's the percentage that will make you feel at peace? What advice do you have for college students who are new to the workforce, especially lower income students of color who have more loan debt? Absolutely. And, you know, so I, the last few years have been very privileged to be able to uh, teach a course at my alma mater called adulting. The course is called adulting. I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so I teach a financial activism course. So I, yeah, I teach a financial activism course and I teach an adulting course this semester. That's going to change with my PhD work and all of that. I'll still teach, but in different contexts. But anyway, that is one thing that I think is ridiculous that at least at the college level, before you leave, you know, students aren't receiving that. What I want us to think about is this. There's kind of one kind of, I won't call it a joke, but it is funny. And then there's a kind of more serious thing. So I'll start with the more serious things so we can end on a laugh. Starting out, especially in the workforce, I want you to think about all of the areas where you can actually begin building wealth in your job. So, and this is true whether you have your own business or not. So obviously a lot of people only think about their income as like where I can put that money to then go do work for me. But your benefits package is a huge place where you can begin building wealth. 
So, and that even comes down to your insurance plan. Now, I personally don't believe that insurance should be tied to uh, employment given what's going on. So I think you can all see where I'm going with this. However, with your, um, the insurance package that you have with your company, you can, you need to think about it of, do I want to have a higher deductible and lower premium, which means you'll pay your premiums, what you pay monthly. Your deductible is like, if I go to the hospital, I have to pay this much before insurance will cover it hundred percent. Or do I want a low deductible and a high premium? The way I like to think about this is I have three autoimmune diseases. I'm considered high risk in the COVID world. I know that I'm probably going to be more likely to go to a hospital than like my boyfriend who's super healthy. So I go for insurance that's a low deductible and a high premium. So I'm willing to pay more per month so that I can reach my deductible faster. But for super healthy people, and it's like very rare, you're going to go to the doctor, those types of things, you can save more in your pocket. But saving more from that perspective then allows you to put your money to work some more. Your 401k, of course, is an asset on your the economic side of your balance sheet, life insurance, if you have variable life insurance. So there's a lot of things that you can touch on. And then here's the kind of funny part. There was a study, believe it or not, people study this stuff, that in 2017, millennials spent on average $3,700 on dating. So I have a, a class day. Uh, <laughs> I have a day in my class called, so you went on Bumble and uh, we talk about this. And so the big thing, the reason why I bring this up is because oftentimes we don't plan for the economic impact of dating. Now, this is very heteronormative because what happened is obviously if you're in a heteronormative context, it's usually the man who is paying. But again, it was a super heteronormative study. So I just want everybody to be aware of that. So like when you, you have a job and you're like, yeah, I'm going to like go out. I'm going to like, you know, do all this kind of dating and stuff. Please make sure you're aware of the impact of going on Bumble, Hinge. I don't know what kids go on these days. I don't know. I think OkCupid's okay, like out. Like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Those are great. Thank you so much for those answers. Absolutely. Thanks for the questions, everybody. Thank you so much for coming on and thank you to everybody for tuning in. You guys can download The Activist Investor now. It's available in the episode description on my Instagram and on Chloe's Instagram. She's Chloe B. McKenzie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two V's. See you next week.